Hey friends, uh, my name is Pastor John Jay. I am the lead pastor here at FBC Pasadena, and I get the joy this morning of sharing a teaching with you all. Before that, I just want to add another reminder to Lindsay's, and thank you for that prayer. Uh, it's the last Sunday for the Brockways, and so uh, it will not hurt my feelings at all if at some point during this sermon, this teaching, if you want to take out that blessing card and write them a little note so that when the offering plate goes around, you're ready and can uh, set it in there so we can get those to them. At the end of the service, we will do a blessing for them. Uh, I've been here now for almost a year, and we've said goodbye to several folks. Like that's, I think that's part of the thing about living close to a university and a seminary. You bring people in for a season, and you send them back out. It also is just the nature of L.A. sometimes where people may come for a season and head back out. It's not always people's forever home. Uh, so we have to get good at blessing and sending. Part of this idea of being the church local is also understanding the way we're connected to the church global. So even though the Brockways are leaving, it's much more, I think, a part of us is going with you. The other thing that we'll do next week, uh, since we are saying goodbye at certain rhythms, is we're going to say hello to a whole group of new people who've decided to join our congregation. So next week, you'll get to meet some of them. You'll get to read some of their bios or see their pictures, and we'll celebrate. Uh, you can't leave until you've gotten a replacement. That's the rule. And so you'll get to choose whoever of that group to be your replacement. Okay. Let us begin this morning. We are in the middle of, this is the second week where we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. This is going to be all throughout the summer. And I always tell people, uh, preaching is already a bit of a fraught task. But anytime the words are Jesus' words, it's really scary to preach. Uh, especially to preach in a way that like is sort of, here's what the text is saying. Here's what the scriptures are saying. Can we even hear this? And if we can hear it together, are, are you going to like throw tomatoes at me if I tell you what the word says? That's just the nature of Jesus's proclamations. And the Sermon on the Mount is for sure in that tradition. Uh, so I'm excited and also fear and trembling all of the time. Um, also, it's an all church Sunday, which means we have all the families and kids are here with us. So kids, welcome. Uh, my kids are here. Got some kids all over the place. We're very excited. It's almost the end of school, and I felt like a great way to honor the kids' presence here is to start this teaching with a history lesson, because that's what they're here for, is more school. Uh, So we're going to do that together. We're going to talk about empire. We talked about it last week, but it is the context in which the sermon is given. When Jesus goes up to the mountain, and he stands, and he reads the scripture, and sits, and teaches... In the background, vibrating all over the place, is this overarching reality called empire. Empire is hard to see if you are in it, and I will say right now that we are in it. There is usually not a time in the church's history where we have been able to be distinct from or apart from what we would call the forces, the powers and principalities of the world. And the way that we can talk about that kind of in one word is the word empire, the two big empires that dominate the Bible imagination is Egypt from the Exodus and then Babylon from the exile. When you get to Jesus' time in the New Testament, the new empire is Rome. It's whatever the power structure is that sort of dictates the boundaries of reality. Now, the reason this is important today and will be important for the rest of this teaching focus is there were different ways at the time and always, even now, where religious people tried to make sense of living in the midst of empire. Empire is that which might tempt us away from loyalty to God. 
It is seductive, is the way the text talks about it. It makes itself invisible, and then it pulls us in. So when you find yourself in the, like patterns of greed, for instance, or uh, like insatiable consumption, or violence to bring about order and peace, these are tools of empire. For however long I'm here as pastor, we will talk about this, so I'm not going to belabor the point right now. But Judaism had distinct responses for what do you do when you live in the midst of empire. When you are in the land known as Israel, but you are not in charge of your own life or your own religious system, everything is a bit out of your control and somebody else is on the throne. Four different ways that they would think about this, and I want you to know them today uh, because they're going to follow us. So, color-coded them for your enjoyment. And I don't, I probably spelled something wrong, so forgive me. So you've got four groups, Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. There are all kinds of different little factions within Judaism, just like there are for Baptists or or any sort of religious expression. But these are the four that kind of stand out. And these are the four that Jesus is in dialogue with. And as you'll see, if you're reading well, critiquing. In different ways. So let's talk about each of these, and I'm gonna I'm gonna move them into some kind of translation. So Sadducees, Pharisees, Zealots, and Essenes. Uh, the better way you might could talk about it is like the Sadducees would be the politicians, right? The Pharisees are a bit like the Puritans. The Zealots are violent revolutionaries or insurrectionists, and then the Essenes would be like maybe an Amish community or something. So what does that mean? Uh, top left. Sadducees, politicians. What do you do if you live inside of empire? For the Sadducees, it was you sort of bend and flex. You make space and room in your religious expression so that the power structures don't get mad at you. You collaborate if possible. Tax collectors make great sense for the Sadducees' way of being. These are the folks who say, like, Rome is in charge. There is zero chance that we're going to be able to beat Rome in any way, shape, or form. And uh, God may or may not be strong enough to do so, but we're not going to take the chance. So let's just make the best of this situation. Uh, These folks were often labeled as traitors for folks kind of in pure versions of Judaism. right? So that's like the politicians, the accommodationists. On the bottom left are the zealots. So the zealots are sort of like... Well, in some expressions, a a terrorist kind of version of faith. We all have a terrorist expression of faith in any sort of faith movement. Judaism had it. We've got it right now in certain versions of like the alt-right white supremacist movements that claim certain foundations inside of Christianity. But we would say that that is a terrorist movement within that we would do well to critique often. So there's a group of, of zealots operating in Judaism that said the only way to live with an empire is to destroy empire, is to violently overthrow it. So even like a super specialized group of them would carry around with them knives kind of strapped to them and would kind of mill about crowds and cause chaos, right? They would just sort of create instability. Judas was likely a zealot. Like, Jesus, when are we going to do the thing? When are we going to overthrow Rome? This is the violent group. The Essenes are like the Amish. This is the group that says, empire is poisonous. It is dangerous. And the only way to be faithful to God in the midst of empire is to leave it. So they went to the desert. Specifically, they went down to the region of the Dead Sea. 
And they said, we're going to create communities away from the power structure so that we can't get infected by them. Way off in the distance. The world is the world. We are something else. And so we are going to be a pure community out in the wilderness. John the Baptist probably had some connection with this community. And then there are the Pharisees. The Pharisees get a bad rap in the New Testament. Because often it sounds like Jesus is sort of shadow boxing with the Pharisees. But the Pharisees are, I believe, the group that is closest to what Jesus is trying to do with this good news. Jesus comes and speaks this word into Judaism. And it is this new interpretation that has to have conversation with everything else that's already in the air. So the Pharisees are the group that says the reason that we are underneath the heel of empire is because we have sinned. And sin has caused God to punish us. And so the way out of this predicament is purity. We don't have to leave like the Essenes. We don't have to go into the wilderness, but we do have to straighten up. And if we can just keep the law, if we can keep the commandments, then God will see, God will show favor, and God will rescue us. So these are the groups. These are the four groups. And Jesus speaks into them. Sadducees, Pharisees, Zealots, and Essenes. Questions? Lots of questions. A little bit later in the same passage that we read this morning together, uh, there's a reference to the Pharisees. And uh, I'll read it for you. It's from chapter 5. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. I offer that just because there is sometimes this sense that if we read the word Pharisee, it's like a four-letter word in the New Testament. If you, would, you can be anything, but just don't be a Pharisee. And what Jesus says is that the Pharisees are an approximation of the path. The problem is the Pharisees had pretty high walls about who was in and who was out. Whenever you're after purity, but you're going to exist in the world, you've got to make sure certain people aren't allowed in. Like dirty people, unclean people, certain kinds of poor people, uh, folks who maybe drink too much or folks who talk about the wrong kind. Like there are certain people who just do not belong because they can't keep the law as good as you can or your own people can. This is why Jesus runs into conflict with them. Which brings us to these images that Jesus gives us, salt and light, which is what we're going to talk about today. What does it mean to be salt and light? Now, I will say at the start that I have spent like weeks reading about this stuff, and salt is really, really confusing. I think I know what it means because I have lots of salt at home, and so I just assume that whatever Jesus is talking about is whatever I think about salt. But salt in the ancient world is a bit like, I thought about this analogy, if Jesus had said, you are the duct tape of the earth. So imagine if someone came back to the earth like a hundred years from now and hadn't learned anything about history and you just said to them, like, you were the duct tape of the earth. I'm assuming we're not going to use duct tape in another 20 or 30 years. Surely we'll have moved past duct tape. But what is duct tape for? Too many things. It's used for everything. And so, I don't know. How do you narrow it down? Salt had so many uses. Preservative, to flavor things, sometimes used for judgment, sometimes used for promise and hope. But there is this principle that I love in scriptural interpretation. 
it is that where scripture is weak in one area, it is strong in another. So if I was confused about what salt meant in the passage from Matthew 5, there might be another place in scripture that's in conversation with it. Sure enough, it is. Now let me stop for a second. There is so much that can't be said on Sunday mornings. There's just not, I know you can't believe it, but there's just not time. So, Starting in like a couple of weeks on Thursdays at noon, we're going to have a Bible study group that's going to study the teaching text for the next Sunday. And all of the things that I won't be able to say or that you've thought of that won't make it in or that might make it in will happen in that space. So if you're like, I wish, I wish that we could talk about this for another hour. You're in luck. We can all together on Thursdays. Okay. You'll hear more about that. Where scripture is weak in one place, it's strong in another. This is a, a, um, an approach to interpretation that is very historical, and we're going to get really good at it together. So if you turn in your Bibles to Luke 14, I'll read it for you. There's a section about discipleship. And then Jesus talks about salt again, and Jesus says this. So salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? This sounds familiar. It should sound like the sermon. It's fit for neither the earth nor for the dung heap. The dung heap is a fancy word for a pile of manure or or poo, for those of you who aren't up on the language. They throw it away. Let anyone with ears hear. Here's what this likely meant at the time. So, which by the way, I'm really glad that this is not the way we do things anymore. But at the time... In Israel, there was not a lot of trees. It's like a very arid landscape. So there wasn't just plentiful wood to make fires to cook your food. So what they would do, because there was lots of animals, is apparently they would make lots of, well, this would be like your job, all the kids who are here, this would be what you get to do. JP and Judah and Marley and the rest, you would take all of the animal excrement. Do you know what the word excrement means? It means poop, yes. I gave you a picture in case you weren't sure. You would take it and you would form it into cakes and you would put it out in the sun to dry. And then you would use it like fuel for the fire. One of the things that they would do, though, is they would add salt into the manure or into the poo so that it would burn. It was like a catalyst for the fire. That is a terrible image. They also would take often like a block of salt, a salt block, and they would put it in the bottom of this uh, communal oven. And that would get used up over time, again, to sort of get the heat going and get the fire going. At some point, though, that block of salt would lose its ability to keep the fire moving. And when that happened, you would take it out of the fire, you'd take it out of the oven, and you would throw it somewhere along the side of the road where there might be mud or there might be some kind of uh, like slippery space, and it would create a good walking path. So when Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth, the earth is likely language for like an earthen oven. And part of what he's saying <laughs> is that our call has something to do with keeping this fire going. The other thing that Jesus says in here is this line. You're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste. The language for taste there is the language for becoming uh, like a fool. It's actually the word that we get moron from, becoming morons. I didn't know salt could become stupid, but that's what it means. So, 
you are the salt of the earth, but if, if salt becomes foolish or moronic, it's good for nothing but to be tossed out. What's happening in this passage? What does it mean to lose your saltiness? And it, it says, like, it's impossible to restore salt back to its state once it's lost it. It'd be like taking salt that doesn't work anymore and pouring more salt on it. It's not going to fix the problem. There is this danger, and we're going to talk about this a couple of times this morning. This danger that you will play the part of someone following Jesus, but you will have none of the qualities of someone who would be like Jesus. It's like baptizing all of the ideologies of empire and pretending that that is sacred God stuff. I have lots of examples. Made me think of this question. Have you ever met a huckster? A religious huckster? Someone selling like the snake oil or whatever the new version of that is? Raise your hands if you have ever encountered that sort of thing. This is the like, that's not salt, but it sure is pretending to be salt. This is likely the language of the Sadducees. Folks who claim to be part of the family of God, but surely have moved in another direction. It looks like this. It looks like French kissing Caesar. Now, we could name some religious leaders who lately look like they've been just completely full-on embracing Caesar, empire. Forfeited whatever the path of Jesus is for something that is expedient, that wields the tools of the world, and has none of the flavor of the gospel. This is dangerous. Often in church, we'll think about like who is in and who is out. And I don't love the way those categories work themselves out. But you might think to yourself, like, who is God going to sort of bring into the kingdom of God? And who gets set out into this dangerous space that we might would call like hell or Gehenna or the fire? And sometimes church folks will say, like, it's those people who aren't yet with the program that don't know any of our language or any of our history, any of our tradition. And uh, so they're the ones who are destined to like get thrown out and trampled under feet. But in the in the Sermon on the Mount and in like most of the New Testament when Jesus is talking, that judgment is reserved for folks who are pretending to be part of the family of God. Who borrow all the language, all the trappings, all the outfits, all the stages, all the buildings and churches and titles, and then spew the language of empire. That is what it looks like to lose saltiness. It is a dangerous place to be. So this invitation that Jesus is giving in the sermon, like this is the way, this is what it looks like to follow after me. This is what it looks like to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. This is what I'm inviting you into. It, it is not all just sort of sunshine and puppies and roses. It is a fraught exercise. Because if you take a step in and then you use it and abuse it, you are in grave danger, the text says. The other problem, and this is where light balances things out, is what if there's salt, but there's no fire? 
this is the problem of the Essenes. This is the problem of the communities that distance themselves as they've found a way to maintain ritual purity, sort of keep the law, but they are no longer in the world. They are not useful. They will not mix themselves up with manure. Out. Hence, Jesus' next image. You are the salt of the earth, the salt of the oven, but you are also the light for the cosmos, the light for the world. Then he keeps explaining what that looks like. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That's the language. It's language of a, a city on a hill or a, a candle on a table. And this is historical language. This is not something that Jesus is kind of pulling out of thin air. There was this sense that Jerusalem is the city on a hill. It stands up higher on the landscape. If you've been to that area, you know this is true. And all sort of divine goodness emanates out from that space. And the Jewish people at the time deeply believed that God would pull them all back together at some point, would redeem and would rescue them, and would create in that space, this new kind of city, this new kind of humanity, and that they would be light for the nations. That's what's happening here in the passage. But there is a, there is a danger here too, and it's the danger that's on the front of your, uh, of your bulletin. So we're going to play around and have an object lesson today. Um, There is nothing simple about what Jesus is doing here. Every, like every little turn of phrase has just infinity layers underneath it. It's, it's, there's just such richness present here in the sermon. So Jesus says, let your light shine so that everyone may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. So there is something that's supposed to be visible about being the community of God. If at some point you thought you were to cluster and this is the place where you kind of like, we got high walls so nobody really knows what we're doing in here, right? And then when we leave this place, we kind of keep it to ourselves like a well-guarded secret. Jesus is saying no to that. But now here's the other danger. And this is always what happens when the Bible talks about how to live into God's good world. The kingdom of heaven following after Christ the way, whatever language you want to use, is that there is this light that you are supposed to to emanate. But at some point, you are going to think that you are the point, right? And so there is this, uh, it looks like this. This feels really good to me. I can't see any of you right now. But you can see me really, really well. It's hot, by the way, right here. So, a little bit later in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, several times Jesus will say, don't, don't give to those who are in need in a public way, like sounding a trumpet and making sure everybody sees you. Because if you do that, then you're being quite arrogant. Your, your ego is getting in the way. Or when you fast, don't fast in such a way that you're sort of like, ah, everybody needs to know. This. Or, 
When you pray, don't stand on the corner and make sure everyone knows how good of a prayer you are. What's confusing here, though, is that that seems like the kinds of good works that you're supposed to show, right? Let your light shine is the command. It's an imperative so that others may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. There is a danger in following the Jesus path that you'll think that it's about you, right? I've made it. And the world is so lucky to know me. Right now, you know, this kind of version of Christianity too. the one that is self-referential, that points back at itself, that kind of is eating itself by the tail. It doesn't exist to illuminate the world. It exists to illuminate me. So even as we make ourselves visible, right, let your light shine so that the world may see your good works. I'm sorry, guys, it's super bright, I know, right? But here's what happens when it turns this way, is I am way less important. There is something about the path of descent, of humility, I'll I'll end yours, involved in shining, where it isn't about you, it's about God. And there will be a temptation the more you start to walk this path that you will begin to think that you are a super God person. Part of that language of like, your righteousness has to exceed even that of the Pharisees who are quite righteous to enter the kingdom of God is itself this humbling statement. There's one more thing that I want to say this morning. And it's about the other thing that salt and light might be. So at the time, there was this hope. Isaiah articulates it the best, the prophet in the Hebrew scriptures. That God was going to return in a very visceral way to this realm. It would look like another deliverance. The people had this memory of the exodus. And at some point, God was going to come and redeem God's people again. And this was going to be called the day of the Lord. So we're just all kind of waiting for the day of the Lord. When Jesus preaches at some point at his hometown, he starts by reading this passage from Isaiah about the day of the Lord. I'll read the section for you because I want you to hear the, the fraughtness of the whole thing. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to release the prisoners and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's how this, the reading goes. So Jesus reads the passage in front of like a church assembly, like this sort of thing, reads it and then sits down to teach, right? Because you sit when it's time to teach and then says to them, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's from Luke's gospel. Then a little bit later, after Jesus keeps talking, the people who are listening decide that whatever message or sermon Jesus is giving is definitely warrants his own death. So they drive him to the edge of a cliff to kill him, right? Can you see why it's so scary to preach this stuff? Because what's the next line in Isaiah 61? 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Other prophets will say, like, you cry for the day of the Lord. You cry in the temples and the synagogues for God to show up. What do you think is going to happen when God shows up looking for justice and righteousness? Are they going to, is God going to find it here? The day of the Lord, you ask for the day of the Lord and you assume it's going to be good news, but you might find yourself salt without flavor or light focused on yourself. Annie Dillard talks about the, the author and essayist about the cavalier nature with which we take the presence of God in the world. As though what we are handling here is not n- nuclear, right? Is not have this sort of kinetic power and energy. And if we were to handle it without care, we might find ourselves in trouble. Read you a passage from the book of Hebrew. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 26 and following. This is the language of people who have heard, who have absorbed the teachings, the message of Jesus, this good news, and then have co-opted it for their own needs. For if we willingly and willfully persist in sin after having received the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. This is a terrible passage. But a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who have spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified, and outraged the Spirit of grace? I don't know exactly how to do those things, but I definitely don't want to do them, right? Spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant, and outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know the one who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. There it is again. Proclaim the, the day of the Lord and the day of vengeance. The Lord will judge his people. It is a, and this is the line, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. There is always this sort of dual awareness that we live with when we invite God into our midst. On the one hand, this is great news. If we are bound, if we are poor, if we are hungry, if we are blind, if we are lame, if we are stuck, God is strong to deliver. And so, just like when Mary proclaims in this song early when she finds out she's pregnant, God is on the way for those who most need God's rescue. But what happens if you have been the one oppressing? If you have been the one defrauding? If you have been the one weaponizing greed and violence? In the name of God. The day of the Lord will show up. Part of the language of salt and light is that it is itself a complicated metaphor. Salt is in the fire, and the fire reveals. Often when we think about fire, and we think about it in the context of religion, it's like a punishment, right? You get thrown into the fire if you don't do the things you're supposed to do. But what if the whole thing is a fire? 
What if the whole path of Jesus is a fire and it reveals, right? It, less punishment and more apocalypse. Apocalypse is the language of revelation, that which unveils or uncovers. So if you want to engage in this God project, you're going to be tested. It's not going to be easy. Right before the salt and light passage is the passage about suffering and the call to rejoice and be glad in the midst of suffering. I don't want to make this too easy. To engage with the living God. It is a fearful thing. It is the kind of fear that should obliterate all other fears. Fire's the same way. This light. There's not like, didn't have a spotlight. They had fire at the time. And fire by its nature consumes. And it reveals. And that's where we are right now as we head into the commandments of the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks. What does it mean to be a visible community? To shine light into the world and yet not fall into the temptation to make it about us. What does it mean to be undone by this message? This upside down strange message about how to live in the world and not become the world, but to transform the world. There is a good metaphor that we're going to live into this morning, which is the one of the table. There's bread and there's the cup. And Jesus tells us that these elements, which were very common to their life at the time, take on this new meaning. They become the body and blood of Christ, he says. And that we consume them. And by consuming them, we are made whole. Again, it is sort of a paradox of an image or a metaphor. It's inside out. Now, here's the other call, that we are to be like Christ. Later on, Christ says, Jesus is like, I am the light of the world. And Jesus tells us, like, you are the light of the world. There is this becoming aspect. Now, if we are becoming salt and light, we are also becoming communion. We are also becoming that which is consumed for the good of the world. And this might be the space where we are kept safe from the temptation to make it about us. Because to follow Jesus is to be about the people God is about. If you want to know who those are, you can go back and read the Beatitudes, the meek, the weak, the poor, the hungry, those who've rejected violence. Next week, we're going to begin to talk about the impossible commandments that Jesus reinterprets for us. Right now, the call is to be seen. That your works, that your life would point toward God. I did a funeral a couple of years ago for this guy in the church where I used to work. And I mean, this guy was just a saint. Like he was the best. Uh, his name was James. And it was the easiest funeral I've ever done. Because his life was the closest approximation to what I imagined the life of Christ to look like. That all I had to do was say that over and over again. Seeing and knowing this man, James Kirkendall, was like knowing Jesus. And that's the thing. 
It wasn't about him. It was about Christ. I'm not sure where you're going this week. I'm not sure what your lives are about, all of you, what the Monday through Saturday kind of nine to five rhythm is, but you are called into that space to be this salt and this light, to be something the world can feed on and find hope. Like a window where they can see just like a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. I hope we're taking this seriously, this call. Because to step into relationship with the living God is a fearful thing. Would you pray with me as we move toward communion? God, we belong to you. And if that means that we are supposed to be mixed up in the world like salt, then okay. And we belong to you. And if if that means that we are to illuminate spaces of shadows, then okay. But we confess right now both that we are afraid of the world more than we are afraid of you. And that the path of descent is also itself terrifying. But we ask that you would help us to show up. To be seen as connected to you. That whatever is good, whatever is full of joy and gratitude, that it belongs to you. And so, even as we live into it, we give it back. Now bring us to the table, unburden us from all that we've brought in we're heavy with, and connect us back to you and one another. It's in the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Everybody, uh, y'all can have a seat for just a second. We're getting ready to go. Uh, I want to share a couple of announcements and then I'm going to invite a family up with us, uh, the Brockways. So it's really good to be together and worship. Uh, a couple of things I want you to know. One, in a couple of Thursdays, June 21st, I'm pretty sure that's a Thursday, here in the lobby space or in the sanctuary is going to be our first uh, midweek Bible study. So keep your eye on your email for more information about it. It's open to everybody. Bring your own lunch if you want to eat lunch during noon. Uh, it's going to be a ton of fun. Second thing, next Saturday is the first uh, women's brunch. So we have a men's prayer breakfast and we have a woman's brunch. Rebecca, we just throw your hand up. Uh, Rebecca Skies has helped coordinate some of this. So there's a little handout in your bulletin. Um, you just show up. What time is it? 10 o'clock? 10 o'clock brunch. Uh, it's going to be in the fellowship hall. So you can come in on the union side. You'll hear more information about that next Saturday, which is June the 9th. All ladies more than welcome for brunch. Okay. Two things. One more thing. We have a friend back with us who's been gone for a little bit. Would you stand, Danny, and just say a wave to everybody? We're so glad you're back. Just for a week. 
She's just back for today, a graduation for Fuller. Uh, she was a student at Fuller and a member of our church, incredible servant and leader, and is now back in Brazil, right? The family serving there. So if you've missed her, then you're going to need to catch her and give her a hug because this is her last Sunday for a little bit with us. Okay. Now, Broccoli's, would y'all come on up here? And can I get Bra a microphone? So I asked uh, Dan... Aaron, if they would uh, share just a little bit about what's happening, because you're heading out. So this is their last Sunday with us. Dan uh, is uh, on faculty and administration at Fuller. They've got two kids. Aaron and uh, them have been in the church for how long? Seven years. Seven years. Yeah. Preached, plays drums, uh, behind the scenes. We've had both of these kids now here born in our midst, and they are headed out. I'm going to let you share what's happening, the two of you, and then we're going to do a blessing. Is it on? Yeah. Okay, go for it. Hi, everybody. So uh, we're very excited. Um, I've accepted a call to serve as pastor at First Baptist Church of Brockport, New York, which is right outside of Rochester. Um, So we're going to be packing up in about a week. We're actually already packing up. Um, And we head out a little over a week from now. And then we're going to spend some time in Pennsylvania with family. And then we're going to be heading up to New York. So uh, I start July 1st. And we're very sad to leave you all. (laughs) It's a, it is a bummer, um, but also a, it's a blessing for this congregation, right? You'd, it'd be awesome to have Dan as your pastor, and uh, you've served as that for me a little bit since I've been here. Um, okay, here's what we're going to do as we head out for our benediction. I'm going to ask if y'all, would you just come down here? Uh, it never hurts since we're all together to actually be all together. So if you've been like a part of their journey, if you've been a part of uh, leadership here, worked with them, and you'd like to come forward, we're just going to put a hand on them as we say a blessing and a benediction. I'm going to ask for sure if the ministers would come forward uh, who are in the room or if there are any deacons here, um, anyone who's maybe sung in choir or, or played with them, just kind of gather around. Uh, bedding, babysitting counts. It does. It does. Uh, this is a big, a big step and we're really excited for you. Um, Our prayer always is that any of you, Danny, this is true for you too, when you leave, right, you go with us and our hearts are kind of taken to that new place too. So this is for you as well as for the Brockways. Would you stand for the benediction? So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his smile upon you and give you peace to the Brockways and the kids, to all of you, for all of your days. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.